Most Christians are quick to declare, I'm under grace, I'm not under the law. But Jesus emphatically declared, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law of God given to Moses is a set of guidelines to ensure that the Israelites' behavior reflected their status as God's chosen people. It encompasses moral behavior, their position as a godly example to other nations, and systematic procedures for acknowledging God's holiness and mankind's sinfulness. In an attempt to better understand the purpose of these laws, Jews and Christians categorize them. This has led to the distinction between moral law, ceremonial law, and judicial law, which is the foundation of so much of Western law. The Puritans love to say that the law leads us to Christ for us to be made righteous. And then Christ sends us back to the law to learn what it means to be holy. Well, we are really excited about this series on the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you know that throughout the course of the whole summer and then the early fall, we were going through the Beatitudes of both Matthew and Luke. Uh, and we're continuing now in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're back to Matthew chapter five. And for three weeks, our small groups are gonna be looking at the first three uh, passages uh, following the Beatitudes. And uh, by the way, I just wanna say this, I have no idea whether or not we'll have a third week of small groups based on this code orange. But uh, assuming that we're carrying on, uh, that's where we're at. So we're in Matthew chapter five. Now, the passage that we're looking at today is considered one of the most difficult passages of Jesus' teaching. And uh, so for this reason, I need you to pay close attention. And I want to tell you that uh, it's not difficult. Uh, you should be able to easily understand what I'm sharing with you today. But I do need you to pay a attention. Now, we're talking about Jesus' teaching concerning the law. Now, I have seen over the years more confusion over the subject of the law of God than I have about just about anything in the scripture. Recently, uh, one, of, uh, one of America's most prominent preachers uh, who, who regularly on a weekly basis is ministering to over 20,000 people, he said this. He said, Christians need to unhitch the Old Testament from their understanding of the faith. Unhitch the Old Testament from their understanding of the faith. And by this, he means to instruct people to ignore the Old Testament and focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, in case you don't know, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin of the Christian faith. If there is no resurrection, then we don't have a Christian faith. Does everybody understand that? So he's emphasizing that. But it's a huge mistake to say that the law does not apply. Or is he right? 150 years earlier, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, there is nothing in the law of God that will rob you of happiness. 
It only denies you that which would cost you sorrow. What is he saying? He's saying if you keep the laws of God, if you do what God tells you to do, you will not be robbed of sorrow. In fact, quite the opposite. What will happen is that you will find true happiness because the laws of God are there to protect you. How many understand that that is really what the law is there to do? It's there to protect you. It's there to protect us and to keep us safe and content. Now, which one is right? Is it the pastor, the American pastor, or is it Charles Spurgeon? Is the law of God, and by the law of God we mean the Old Testament, is the Old Testament still valid for us today, or is it useless? Well, the Jewish teachers and the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they thought that when Jesus came along preaching and teaching what he did, that he was somehow trying to destroy the law of God, undermine the Old Testament, communicate that the Old Testament was no longer important, that what mattered was what Jesus was saying. Well, let's see what Jesus himself says in answer to the Jewish skeptics and in answer to those teachers and preachers today who no longer believe that the Old Testament is valid. Jesus says in verse 17, we're reading verse 17 to 20 of Matthew 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't think that. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. If you have a King James Bible, it says not a jot or a tittle will be, uh, will, will be pass away until all the law is accomplished. I'm going to tell you in a moment what a jot and a tittle is. Verse 19, therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Thank God for our Sunday school teachers and all who teach the will of God, the law of God. And then verse 20, Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now you can see, if you've, if you've read the Apostle Paul, you can see how this passage of Scripture might cause all kinds of bells to go off and you're wondering, what on earth? Is, is, is Jesus contradicting the Apostle Paul who says we're no longer under the law but we're under grace? What is going on here? Well, we can safely conclude from this passage that we just read that Jesus Christ is not abolishing the law and that we cannot unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. No way. Jesus says the earth will pass away before even a jot or a tittle will be removed. Well, let me just show you what a jot and a tittle is. So on, my, on your right here, this is a jot. That's one of the Hebrew letters. It's the smallest one, very tiny. It's like our eye, uh, only without a dot. Uh, we would call that a, an iota. But you'll notice over there on that letter, it's got a tittle. And, it's, and the only thing I do is point it out to you. Here it is. 
and it, it's just a little curve up there. So if there was no tittle, that would be gone. But we have a tittle there. That tittle actually uh, completes the name of Jacob in Hebrew. You need that tittle on there. Now, in, in the Greek, when it talks about the yota and the dot, the actual, that's how we've translated. The word actually is a horn. The word dot is horn, and that's what it looks like. It looks like a horn on the end of that letter. Jesus is saying that he has a high view of the Old Testament, has a high view of Scripture. Jesus is saying none of the Scripture is going to be changed. Every bit of it is important. Every bit of it is according to God's will and purpose. So you see that Christ has a high view of Scripture, even though today many people have a low view of Scripture. They don't think it's important. They don't understand its value. And they will say, oh, well, the Bible is full of mistakes. How many have heard that? You've heard that, haven't you? Well, that's a lie. It's not true. There may seem to be contradictions, but if you know your theology, then you're able to understand that, in fact, they're not contradictions. Now, I haven't got time today to go into all the, all the issues of the Old Testament that seem to be contradictory, but I can tell you, after studying the Scripture carefully for almost 40 years, I am more convinced and more thrilled and more excited about the Word of God than I have ever been in my life. So, we, we see that Jesus is saying no part of the scripture is, is going to be removed. Every bit of it counts. Every bit of it matters. But now you're asking yourself the question, well, okay, but then what does it mean? What does it mean when Paul says, I'm, we're no longer under the law, we're under grace? What does that mean? And you probably have said it yourself. I know I have. Now, the problem with making statements like that is that you better know what you're talking about. And so today what I want to do is I want to help you understand what it means to be under grace, but I also want to show you the importance of the law, which God himself says through Christ will not be abolished. The law is critical and it's important. And so that's what I want to talk about right now. I want to talk to you about why the law is important. And the first thing that I'm going to tell you is that the, the Old Testament is important because it is the backstory that helps us understand the importance of Jesus Christ. If you don't understand the backstory, then you can't fully appreciate or understand the importance of Jesus Christ as our Savior. And a lot of people don't. Jesus says that he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. By the way, the law and the prophets is just another term for the Old Testament. So you have the law, which is the first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the Pentateuch, sometimes called the Torah. These are the laws. This is the revelation of God, what he expects of us. This is the revelation from God of what it means to be holy. And then, of course, the prophets and their writings tell us of what is to come. Now, Jesus is telling us and saying that he fulfills the law and the prophets. He's telling us that the whole Old Testament points to him. The law and the prophets. 
And if you have been a Christian for any length of time, and if you've read through the Old Testament, then you will find as you're reading the Holy Spirit opening your eyes and helping you to see Jesus. Once you've read the Bible one or two times, you begin to see Jesus in every book of the Bible. It's absolutely thrilling. You see Jesus there. You say, Pastor Allen, I'm not really sure I understand that. Well, the Apostle Paul explains it like this. He says, these festivals and these laws that you've, that you've been keeping and that you've been reading about, he says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. But Paul says, That's the, the Old Testament is not the end of the story. He says, rather, that the Old Testament is, is a reflection of Christ. It's a shadow. He says, the reality, however, is found in Christ. In other words, look at this, the whole Old Testament begins to make sense when you see what Jesus does in the New Testament. It's absolutely thrilling stuff. Jesus himself satisfies every law and every command in that he is the perfect man. The first Adam we read about in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, he failed miserably. He was imperfect, and sin entered in through Adam and Eve, entered into the human race. But Jesus, who's called the second Adam, is absolutely perfect. He is the reality. He is the fulfillment of God's plan and God's, God's redemptive work in our world. Now, if you're a little bit confused, don't panic. I'm going to explain all this to you in just a moment. But I want you to see something. If you take away the Old Testament, you're going to have a hard time having a New Testament because the fact of the matter is, is that the Old Testament is essential to New Testament writing. Matthew to Revelation it quotes the, New the Old Testament 855 times. Did you know that? A lot of people don't know that. And so one person has, has uh, done the calculations and they feel that, that the New Testament uh, is 27% Old Testament. That's how often the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament. What is the New Testament doing? It is explaining to us God's plan. It's the fulfillment of God's plan for humanity. And what is God's plan for humanity? Well, that's a good question. And the answer to that, again, is found in the Old Testament. It begins in Genesis 1 to 3 the, with the creation of the world. So it answers questions like this. Where did I come from? Well, God created you. And it answers another question. Why am I here? Well, we're told in Genesis 1 to 3 that we were created in the image of God. We bear his image. What does that mean? It means that you and I were created to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray that in the Lord's Prayer. This is what you and I were created for. We were created to do the will of God. That's our purpose in life. How many people have asked the question, what's my purpose in life? Well, the Bible has the answer. 
Your purpose is to be an image bearer, to bear the image of Christ to your community, to your world, to your children. In other words, people will get to know who God is through you. Well, that was God's original plan. But what happened is that sin entered in because Adam and Eve refused to obey God. So this is, this is the answer to the question. Where did this evil come from? It came right through Adam and Eve, through our first parents. And then the next question is, well, what is sin? Sin, very simply, is disobeying God. It's refusing to do the will of God. God gave Adam and Eve one command, one command. And that command was simple. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. And, and Jesus says this. And this answers another question. Why do we die? And Jesus said, the Bible says clearly in Genesis chapter, chapter 2 that if you eat the fruit, that is, if you disobey God, you will die. You will surely die. You will die physically, and you will die spiritually. And so every one of us, when we're born, we're born with sin, which means that we are, are dead in our trespasses, dead in our sin. And we remain dead spiritually until we're born again. That's where the term born again comes from. You're dead in your sin until God makes you a brand new creation. So you're dead spiritually, and then all of us die physically. Genesis 1 to 3 explains all of this. What else does it explain? explains so it explains to us how how we were created in the image of God explains our purpose it explains how sin entered in how evil entered into this world it explains to us what sin is disobeying God it explains to us that we're separated from God because as soon as Adam and Eve sinned Genesis 3 God said out you you can no longer stay in my presence the garden of eden is the presence of God Sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. Out. And so Adam and Eve are separated from God, and all humanity is separated from God. So here we are in this world. What are we going to do? We need someone to help us. We need a Savior. And God says, that's right, you need a Savior. And we find in Genesis chapter 3, the first evangelistic message. We, in fact, in Latin, they call it the proto-evangelium. Let me, let me show you it. In Genesis 3.15, God says to the snake, I will cause hostility between you and the woman. Who is the snake, by the way? Satan. I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Who is her seed? It's Jesus. This is why so often in the scripture, Jesus is referred to as the seed of the Virgin Mary, the seed of David. And here's what Jesus will do. He will crush your head, Satan, and you will strike his heel. That's what happened at the cross. Now, back then, nobody understood this. This is for our benefit. So we can look back and say, oh, 
God didn't, wasn't all confused and didn't know what he was doing. God knew right from the beginning of time what was going to happen, and he had a plan all ready to go. Satan, you think you're going to crush Jesus by inspiring evil men to have Jesus crucified. Satan, you think that you're going to win this battle. And so Satan does bruise the heel of Jesus. But here's the beautiful irony. Oh, the most glorious irony in all of history, the most glorious irony in all the universe is that even as Satan attacked Christ, he was destroying himself. In having Jesus crucified on the cross, Satan didn't realize that when Jesus died on the cross, that spelt his end. And Jesus, of course, because he's perfect, death could not keep him down. Death could not keep him in the grave. And three days later, he is arisen. Folks, this is called the gospel, and we find it right there in Genesis chapter 3. Why is the law important? Well, because it gives us the backstory. It helps us understand the importance of a Savior. It shows us why we need Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the law reveals to us the mind of God and what God requires of us. God is holy. In fact, he tells his people, be holy as I am holy. Now, some of you are asking, well, what does holy mean? Holy means that we are separated from this world. We are not like the world. We are separated and we are pure. That's really what it is. So God says, even as I am separated and not of this world and not like this world, I need you to be separated and not like the world. You see, humans have tried to understand and come up with their own gods. The problem is, is that all the gods that have been created by man are all reflections of man. What we, what we do with, when we're not Christians is we create God in our own image. And God says, the God that you've created is, is, is useless. What you need is the true God, the one God, and his name is Yahweh. And Yahweh expresses himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says of himself, I, if you want to know who God is, look at me. I am the reflection of God. Is the law important? You better believe it is. Because in the law, God reveals himself to us. When I hear people say, I'm a Christian, and then they proceed to talk about a woman's right or women's rights to have abortion, I say, you do not know who God is. You are utterly ignorant of who God is, and you are utterly ignorant of the Scripture. Because we are told at the very beginning of Scripture that we're created in the image of God. When you were killing, uh, you, you call it abortion? We like to use euphemisms. We don't want to be direct because the direct language, the frank language is too painful. And I'm going to tell you some of this is going to make some of you angry. But my job is not to make you happy. My job is to tell you the truth so that when you hear the truth, the truth will set you free and you'll start doing things God's way. 
There's nobody who calls himself or herself a Christian that can also then go on promoting abortion. Because these babies, when they are conceived, they are created, look at this, in the image of God. And that when they're born, God's will is that they do his will on earth as it is in heaven. You can't abort babies. I heard one, this is about 15 years ago, I saw a documentary, I think it was on 60 Minutes, and this woman, I don't know why, I mean, it was a sensational bit, it was absolutely useless, but it was interesting, because it was a, a woman who was a striptease artist, she had become a Christian, and so she decided, well, I'm going to, and obviously, she didn't go to a very good church, but she decided that she was going to be a striptease artist for Jesus. And then when she did her striptease work, she would do it for the glory of God. Well, look, you can't come to that solution if you know the word of God, if you know the law of God. Billy Graham talked about the gangster that became a Christian under his preaching. And Billy Graham met with that gangster, and that gangster told Billy Graham, I, Billy Graham, now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to be the best gangster that I can be. Billy Graham, pardon me? Oh, yes, I'm going to be the best that I can be. Think of all the money that I can use and, and bring to the kingdom of God. Billy Graham had to set him straight. You obviously don't understand what the Bible is telling us. But this is what happens to anybody who doesn't know the Scripture. You come to ridiculous conclusions if you don't know the law of God. And for this reason, Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law. What else does the law do? Well, the law tells us that we need to be like God. We need to obey him. We need to do his will. We need to obey all his commands. In fact, that's what, what Moses tells the children of Israel. God speaks through Moses and says this, Deuteronomy 6.1. These are the commands, the decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess. God is saying to Israel, when you come into the promised land, you have to do all the laws that I'm telling you to do. Why? Because that's what it means to be holy. You need to be holy as God is holy. Oh, okay. So what happens is that for 1,500 years, the children of Israel are trying to fulfill all 613 laws of the Old Testament. And guess what? They discover no matter how hard they try, they can't do it. Now, if they could be perfect, if they could fulfill all the laws, well, then it wouldn't be necessary, would it, to have a sacrificial system. But because of their sin, they need to make these sacrifices. Now, you need to understand this. The sacrifice of the Old Testament, as gruesome as it is, is necessary to cover or atone for our sin. God wants to make us understand how heinous, how horrible sin is. We're so used to sin now that it doesn't bother us. It doesn't disturb us. We easily will watch all kinds of sinful things on television. It doesn't disturb us in any way, and that's a problem. That's a very big problem. So here's, here's these sacrifices, the covering 
of our sins. Why? Well, as the Bible tells us, the wages of sin is death. That's why we need sacrifices. The people failed miserably. In fact, the whole history, if you look at the Old Testament, the whole history, which is there for our benefit, it shows us people trying to be good Christians, Old Testament Christians, trying to get it right, but the next thing you know, they forget about God, they're trying hard to do it in their own strength. Next thing you know, they forget about God, they're worshiping other gods, false gods. Next thing you know, their sin is so terrible that God actually has to kick them out of the land, and he sends them into exile. And it's while they're in exile, while they're away from their homeland, that they realize when we were in our own homeland and God was looking over us, that's when we were happiest. For 1,500 years, they, they, they went through that. And God heard their cry. God heard their plea for mercy. And finally, the one that the law and the prophets, and the prophets prophesied about, the law and the prophets pointed to the Messiah. Finally, the Messiah came. He was born into the world. And it's interesting, John tells us in John chapter 1 that when the Messiah came, people didn't understand him. They didn't understand what he was about. And some of you still don't understand why Jesus came, but now you're understanding this. You're understanding that you're a sinner, and you're understanding that you need God's grace. You need God's help. You need a Messiah. God knew that the people couldn't keep these laws. And that's why he sent the prophets. You think that you've maybe read through some of the prophets. You think, I don't get all this stuff. I want you to read it again. And now think of Jesus as you're reading through the prophets. Why did God send the prophets? Because the prophets are telling of the coming of a Messiah who is going to help people who are in their sin. Here's what the prophet says in Isaiah 53, 5 to 6. Speaking to people who know they're sinners. Speaking to people who know they need to die because of their sin. Speaking to people who need supernatural help with their sin. And Isaiah, the prophet, speaks God's word. But Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Jesus paid the price. He was punished in our place. And by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are spiritually healed and made whole. By his wounds, that separation, that wound that was between God and us has been healed. And now through Christ, we can come back into the Garden of Eden, into the very presence of Almighty God. That's through the Messiah. Isaiah says, here's our situation. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on 
Jesus, the iniquity of us all. You see the good news, the gospel in the Old Testament. That's why the Old Testament is important. It's the backstory that helps us understand the importance of the coming of Jesus Christ. And then, what do we discover? We discover that the Messiah, because he has died for us, he restores us to eternal life. He restores us to the Garden of Eden. See, Pastor Owen, what are you talking about? I don't know if I've ever heard this stuff before. Look it. The Bible begins in the Garden of Eden. That's where it begins. Men are in, man and woman are in the Garden of Eden. And then when you get to the end of the Bible, in Revelation 20, 21, 22, all who have put their faith in Jesus are now back into the Garden of Eden. If you didn't have the Old Testament, if you didn't have the law that explained that we came from the Garden of Eden, then you'll never understand the description in Revelation 20, 21, and 22, where we all who have put our faith in Christ will spend eternity in the new Garden of Eden, the new heaven and the new earth. It's absolutely thrilling when you understand that God's will is that nobody perishes, but that we have eternal life, that we spend our eternity in communion and fellowship with Christ. Doing what? Doing his will on earth as it is in heaven. That, my friends, is the gospel. And this is the importance of the Old Testament. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus wants us to understand that he is the one that we need to turn to. He's the one we need to look to. And Jesus says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. Very quickly then, how does the law apply to the believer? Well, look at the law, the rules, the commands, the holiness of God, it leaves us feeling desperate because we can't do it. How many understand today you can never be good enough? And yet I hear so many people say, I'm a good person. I've never murdered anybody. And the, and the thing is, if you know the Old Testament, then you'll have to say, no, you're not good. <laughs> Sorry, you fall short and you really, really fall short. The law makes us desperate. And what does it do? It leads us to Jesus. And once we've come to Jesus, once you've given your heart to Christ, here's what happens. You, know, you, don't wanna, you no longer want to live like you used to live. You want to live a holy life. You want to please Jesus. You don't want to do what you used to do. Suddenly, once you become a Christian, the parties that you went to, it doesn't bring any happiness anymore. It leaves you feeling empty and gross. And the people you used to hang out with, you don't want to hang out with them anymore because they take you down to the deepest levels of of debauchery and sin and evil conversation. No, you want to you be holy. The question is, how can you be holy? And folks, we look to the law of God and it teaches us how to be holy. But I want you to realize something. And this is so important because this is where a lot of people get off track. They think if I'm legalistic and if I keep all the laws, that will make me righteous. 
The Old Testament shows us that, that it's impossible to be righteous through keeping the law. In fact, the Bible says in the Old Testament that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. So no matter, no matter how good you think you are, the Bible says it ain't good enough. Well, how can I be holy? How can I please God? How can I enjoy his presence? Well, very simply, you have to put your faith in the one who is perfect. His name is Jesus. This is called the gospel, the good news. There's all kinds of preachers and churches now that teach, that have psychology lessons every Sunday and how you can have a better marriage, have a better family, be successful, how you can get ahead, how you can fulfill your dreams, your visions can come true, you can have all that you ever wanted. Folks, this is not the gospel. The gospel is simple. When you become a Christian, when you surrender your life to Christ, you are now doing his will and you are fulfilling the law. Jesus was asked, Jesus, sum up the law. How would you sum up the law, Jesus? What's the, most, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, you want to know? I'll tell you. The whole law of God, the whole Old Testament can be summed up in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's the, that's the law of God. And Jesus shows us how you and I can fulfill those commands. And it begins with you and me putting our faith in Christ and following him. You say, Pastor Allen, how do I follow Jesus? Well, you got to read the Gospels. And Jesus reveals himself and shows us how to live and how to function. But understand this. You can never be righteous in your own strength. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When you become a Christian, when you put your faith in him, what happens, my friends, is that you receive Christ's righteousness. In other words, when God looks at you, because you put your faith in Jesus, God sees Jesus. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. Why? So that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. You and I are declared righteous in God's sight because we put our faith in Jesus. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your failings. He doesn't see your past. If you put your faith in Christ, when Jesus looks at you, when you go before God in prayer, God does not say, I'm not listening to you today. I know what, what you did. I know what you've been doing. I know what you did last year. I know what you did 10 years ago. Far as east is from the west, that's how far your sin has been removed from you. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus because you have the righteousness of Christ. That is who you are in Jesus. If someone says, what does it mean to be a Christian? You say, I have the righteousness of Christ because I put my faith in him. Oh, So let's go back to that person that says, I'm not under... I'm not under the law anymore. I'm under grace. Listen, so many people think 
that because they're under grace, that that's a license to sin. I'm not under the law anymore. I can do whatever I want. No, you can't. And by the way, you may or may not know it, but you are actually, when you say that you're no longer under the law, you're under grace, you're actually quoting the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, no power over you. We are not under the law, but under grace. That's what Paul says in verse 14. But the problem with so many people is they don't read the next verse. That's a problem when you read scripture out of context. Verse 15 says this. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And Paul says, by no means. You don't go sin because you're no longer under the law anymore. Hey, the evidence that you are born again, the evidence that you are a Christian, is that you don't want to sin. In fact, you want to stay away, as far away from sin as possible. Now, how can that be? What does it mean to be born again? Well, Ezekiel answers that question for us. Ezekiel, speaking the word of God, tells God's people, their day is coming in the, in the, in the future, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Stop right there. That's what it means, my friends, to be born again. You're not just following rules when you come to this church. This is not about rules. This is about becoming a brand new creation. You're literally born again. By the way, that's what the, what the ritual of baptism is all about. It signifies you dying and then coming alive as a brand new creation. God says there's a day coming when people will be born again. You can read about it yourself in John chapter 3. The day is coming when I'm going to give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will put my spirit in you and move you, empower you, control you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Folks, this is good news. The day that you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you. I will put my spirit in you. This is in the Old Testament. And you will begin to follow. I will move you. I will control you. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 8. Read it. It'll blow your mind about being spirit-controlled. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees, and you will be careful to keep my laws. Folks, this is the gospel. This is what Jesus Christ has called us to. And all who put their faith in Jesus will receive that spirit who will make it possible for you to not just be good, but to do what Jesus says here in verse 20. Listen to this and we'll close. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine when Jesus' listeners are listening to this? They're thinking, oh, there's no hope for me now. As it was, the Pharisees used to show off how righteous and spiritual they were, and it just caused everybody to be in despair. But now Jesus is saying, your righteousness has to even be better than theirs. Well, there's only one way that that can happen, and that 
is if the spirit of the living God comes to dwell in you and me. And my friends, that is exactly what happens when you're born again. The spirit of the living God comes and dwells in you and enables you to have a righteousness that far exceeds the most righteous people that you know. And I say righteous, I mean self-righteous. Let's stand together. Father, thank you today for your word. Thank you, oh God, for your, for the, for your law, for the law and the prophets that help us understand your purpose for humanity. Helps us understand why Jesus is necessary. Father, when we read the Old Testament, it causes our hearts to rejoice and be glad because we see that we have received the promise that was spoken of for thousands and thousands of years. That promise is Jesus Christ himself who now dwells in us and moves us to follow your decrees, helping us to keep your laws, O God. Father, we pray as we go from this place, we would go realizing that, yes, we are under grace, but because we're under grace, we excel at keeping the law and so much more. Father, go with us as we go from this place and give us joy and gladness. If there's any here today who have not yet put their faith in Christ, may this be the day. And if it's the day that they put their hearts in your hands, oh God, give them the courage to speak to me so that I can explain to them what's next. Father, we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me? Tell the person beside you, keep your eyes on Jesus.